0: Have the jury reached a verdict on which they are all agreed? Yes,
1: Yes, we have.
0: Do they find the defendant guilty or not guilty of murder? Guilty. I'm not guilty by association. I'm not guilty. Hello everybody and welcome to the next episode of our podcast. We are Jemba, Joint Enterprise, not guilty by association. This episode we talk to Dave and Claire Warren about their daughter Zoe Warren who was charged with the murder of Mark Shaw, but she took no part in the attack. You may find some of the issues discussed here difficult to hear, but I urge you to listen to how a vulnerable young woman is let down by our justice system. Zoe regarded Mark as her friend and did not associate with the co-accused Kieran Adi. yet somehow she found herself convicted of Mark's murder using joint enterprise. Our theme music is by Goddass, please go and check him out on social media. And if you need any more information on Joint Enterprise, go to our website, www.jointenterprise.co. Now, over to our host, Ava.
2: Hi, and welcome to another Jengba episode. Today, joining us will be Dave and Claire. How are you both? Oh, yeah, fine, thanks. Very well, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, And we'll be discussing Zoe's case. Um, So, let's start with the questions. Please tell us in your own words about Zoe's case and the treatment by legal bodies.
3: Um, I think, yeah, obviously it's two parts to that question. I think that it's important to note about the, um, the incident or the murder, we call it the incident, um, that three days before that, Kieran Adi, who was um, convicted alongside Zoe, he'd been to Mark Shaw, who was to become the murder victim's house, along with and Zoe was there at the time with one other and he had threatened to murder them caught on video phone video shown in court he was going to murder them for grassing for mark grassing somebody up or something like that it
1: was basically for, for he broke a window at mark's house and he said if they went to police um, he would he would murder them if they grassed him up
3: yeah so so that happened 3 days before and then the the, the day of the incident So Zoe was under leaving care. Leaving care had been up to see her uh, and Mark, and she tidied at the house ready for them. Her and Mark had tidied at the house. I think um, the lady at leaving care had given her some money, and they were quite content. They were talking about the future, future plans, going to Christmas and all that kind of stuff. And they left. And then later on, Mark had gone out and got some heroin um, and said to Zoe in the house he was going to take the heroin. She didn't want to take it. She was scared of it. She doesn't take heroin. And even though she did did take drugs at the time, he collapsed. Um, Zoe rang 999. It was difficult to try and get through, but she got through to the paramedics and they advised her to to perform CPR. So Zoe performed CPR on Mark and helped to save his life as the paramedics turned up to continue the the medical treatment on him. When the paramedics turned up, uh, it was quite weird. The situation obviously, you know, quite fraught with the emotions that are going on. There, a woman had turned up at the house with a pushchair and was asking what was going on, which was completely out of uh, character to what the whole situation. Uh, we later found that she was the one who supplied the drugs. But there was two guys outside who had seen the ambulance and were were basically waiting um, and and outside and calling names uh, into the house.
1: They actually, one of them, who was Kieran Adie, actually also at the property um, and at one point put his arm around the victim, well, put his arm around Mark Shaw, um, who was, he kept saying to him, this is what you get if you use that stuff, you, you smack rat. Um, and he was being quite derogatory to Mark, but then he was actually being quite nice to him in his manner as well. And the paramedics noted um, obviously, the difference in behaviour from Kieran and Eddie towards towards Mark. Um.
3: I, th- I think it's OK for us to say that the other guy was Rookie Willis because he was he was mentioned in court, even though he never went to court and was never charged. Um, so the paramedics left and the two guys, Eddie uh, and Willis, come into the, ha- the property and they start an assault on Mark Shaw. Um, it's quite a vicious assault. Um and they take it in turns. I think it's noted somewhere that Willis was the more vicious of the two at times. Um, They basically, uh, Willis had a dog and he'd taken the chain off the dog and they wrapped it around the the knuckles and they started beating up Mark. Um, Zoe was in the back of the kitchen. Uh, She was told to go there with the the dog. But also Zoe in her statement later on says the guys came in, they used a metal pole on um, Mark and that's quite important. Anyway, uh, that assault happened. Willis leaves the property. Ad stays, ad has got the key to the property now and the back door doesn't work. It's like, it's like, it's shuttered shut. So you can't use it anyway, there's no access egress. Uh, there's only access egress through the front door. Ad then becomes a bit really controlling. He's, he's off his nut on cocaine. Um, and he continues the assault and the assault's quite brutal.
1: He's kicking, he's, he's kicking yeah. and sort of punching and using, obviously, initial log lead the prob, yeah. but then it's punches and kicks. Yeah with steel-capped um, to- boot.
3: uh, steel boots on. Yeah, um, boots, yeah. But anyway, so so that assault continues. He then, unfortunately, tries Mark up, takes him upstairs. Assault continues, and he later stabs Mark Shaw. So he's in the property throughout. She says in a statement she's terrified, doesn't know what to do. Um, he'd already threatened him with murder three days before, and you know, he's committed a murder there. Um, she's in the back room at the top of the stairs while is continuing the assault and she did try and dial the phone to get, try and get access but she couldn't get anywhere with the phone the reception in the property was terrible um, but anyway she was just terrified of what might happen they then leave the property and I know that Adie was pretty close to, to Zoe and he had her phone at times he just, sorry just to
1: add um, following Edie obviously using the night to to murder Mark, edie says words to Zoe, which basically he he's trying to sort of say she's in as much trouble as he is. Yeah. What so what we're gonna do about it, he, do about yeah. it now. Um, and it is obviously in court, it is said that uh, another witness hears a, a female crying, sometimes hysterically, and then at one point a female scream. So he does state in court that she, she does, Scream when when mark was stabbed by by adi um and and then as dave said they, they actually leave the property because zoe felt that that was the only thing she could do at the time she 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 went yeah. with adi
3: so he spent some time now i know she's trying to talk to the people about it and they end up going into a, a guy's house called dowson which we can mention and willis somehow meets up with adi at the same time and they go to the property and they are remarking on the fact that they, what they called Spark the Shark, and Mark's nickname was Sharky. And they were kind of making a joviality about it, laugh about it. And they wash their hands of blood. And Willis goes and sees his friend Dowson. And that's important because of what goes on later on in, in the, uh, the build up to Zoe being charged. So he's at a property, they move around different properties. Drinking, basically. he's trying to explain to other girls what's happened and she's really upset and things like this. And what she isn't aware of is that Aidy then goes back to the property with... Uh,
1: another male who lives in the same village. Yeah. And he is in the house with this male. We don't know the exact timing of it, but this other male's girlfriend gives a statement to police which says that she cannot account for her boyfriend's yeah. movements yeah. after sort of about one o'clock in the morning. So this other, this other male has been to the property with Aidy. Um, and then at approximately sort of eight, nine o'clock in the morning, this girl wakes up and sees her boyfriend with Aidy in her house, or in her boyfriend's house, sorry. And they tell or Ad tells her that they need to go to a particular property yeah. and they go to the property and the property happens to be there and they go in and he locks the door and he makes this girl go upstairs and the boyfriend who was in the house with adi earlier go upstairs and obviously the females <laughs> obviously shocked and very disturbed by what she sees um and tries to come downstairs and asks to be out of the property he doesn't ad, AD doesn't let her out at that stage he's still in control he's in control of the traffic in and out of that. basically they do they do get out the property but they remove items which include
3: they remove the bindings we believe a pull cue and certainly the knife and maybe a bottle that was used for drinking in earlier. And that's taken down to a wooded area and then it's burnt. So Zoe's so oblivious to this. She doesn't know this is going on. She's trying to get out of um, the village. She
1: was trying to source, she didn't have any money and uh, on her at the time. And she was trying to go to other houses to try and get some money or to try and get some assistance to be able to get out of there to, to, to come home. With obviously, she, she failed because nobody, nobody was able to help her with the money. Um, just it's a very close knit community, um, the village where the, the, the murder took place. Um, it's an old pit village. Um, everybody knows everybody. And it's, I think it's important to say, obviously, at this point, that other than Mark Shaw in the village, Zoe knew nobody. She wasn't a friend of Ciaranady and she wasn't a friend of Willis. No,
3: didn't he you know.
1: And she didn't know anybody. She knew of Ciaranady's name, but that's how young people are these days. You know, they hear names through the grapevine and she'd heard of his name, but she didn't, she wasn't a friend Um, and she knew nobody else. So basically she went to the one person who had she'd met through Mark a couple of days earlier to ask for help to get some money and he didn't give her any money. Um, He he clearly didn't know the situation at the time but she she couldn't get back so she stayed and remained off and on in the company of Aidy and others in the village.
3: Yeah and then she she manages to get away. Yeah, she
1: she rings. It sort of rings myself in the early hours of the Sunday morning. Um, Mark's body is discovered at six o'clock at night on the Saturday night, and Zoe manages to get a call to me in the early hours of the Sunday morning, um, and she tells me that you know that that there's a that, there's a the police the police helicopters up there. There's the police cars and that there's a there's a body being found and she tells me that and I sort of start to think you know what on earth is going on I, I didn't know what was going on and I said Zoe get a taxi home and we'll pay for the taxi and I needed her home safely and I could tell she was extremely distressed so Zoe came home and as she came through the front door in the early hours of the morning on the Sunday morning we've never heard anybody sort of make a wailing noise and she breaks down she breaks down completely trying Absolute. to tell us what what has happened
3: and so I said to her look we have to call the police because yeah absolutely let's call the police and so that's what we did and so the police turned up at the door um and the two officers said to "Look, you have to tell them exactly what you know what you've told us and you know for Mark and to make sure you know whatever happened has happened has ha- you know the right thing is sorted out and uh, they took her away and they they um, you know they, they interviewed her.
1: She was interviewed as a witness. Yeah. Um, and
3: then when she came out of the Durham Police Station, when I picked her up, the police officer who taken her away and was interviewing her uh, turned around to me and said she had she didn't do it. So um, we took her home and she was on bail. then. and then
1: sorry, I think wait, wait, during during the interview as a witness, Zoe was arrested on suspicion of murder based on um, the. Basically, we we had a, a feeling that she would be arrested at some point that day because she was present. Um, so initially as a witness, but then she was arrested. Um, and then she was released on bail, and she was given a bail date of the 28th of February 2017. Um, so we so we came home and she basically she what she wasn't doing very much. It was over the Christmas period. He was very sort of quiet and obviously she'd witnessed something absolutely horrendous um, and lost a very good friend because that's what Zoe and Mark were, they were very, very good friends. There was never a bad word said between no, no, them. No. Um, and there's, there's clear Facebook, it, Facebook isn't everything, but it was in the picture and there was never a bad word said between them. And eventually sort of after a few days, we, we saw, you know, Zoe gets or gets a call or is in contact with a guy called...
3: It happens on the 23rd of December. Yeah,
1: on the 23rd when...
3: When a guy gets in touch with me, his name's Paul Strong, and he asks me how Zoe's doing, because he hadn't heard from her in a while. And that's quite important, that, because we were oblivious to what he meant at the time. We just thought he was trying to be supportive. Anyway, uh, we get details passed to Zoe. Zoe then gets back in touch with him. She'd known him beforehand in November and that, and you know, spent some time with him, and so she decided to go and move him with him later on in the new year, and he so, said he would
1: support her, um, and she needed, she thought, had only been with us, and I think she felt she needed some, maybe some other company, and, yeah, someone on
3: her wavelength to, you know, to talk about so, so she
1: she left, and she was there from the very beginning of January, and in the beginning, sort of the middle of January, she, she so it tells me that they're, they're in a relationship and I sort of just go along with it because I just think it's probably Zoe needing some comfort, needing some companionship after everything she'd gone through. That sort of, everything seems fine and um, we soon sort of start to see a little bit less of Zoe so she's not coming home and she's not really in contact a great deal and then there's a couple of times that I would get a message sort of saying that she's really upset because Paul's been saying so well. But it was to do with drugs. It, it was to do with drugs. It, Zoe was going through a very difficult time and she'd started using amphetamines again. And he was going on it as if, you know, he, he had nothing to do with this. But, but Paul's Paul became strong.
3: more controlling. As the situation lengthened, he became more controlling, wanted to know where she was going, what she was up to, and she wasn't doing anything. She was, you know, just trying to get on with things while she was, you know, waiting for a bail date to, to sort of end. And then the police got in touch and said, look, we are going. We need to come and see you. So they came to Strong's property. I was there. Um, the police were there. Zoe was there.
1: Yeah, that was on the 27th of January, which, which was a it.
3: month before her bail date was due. And they NFA'd her. They no further actioned her. And immediately when they knew no further actioned her, they said... Can you help us with some telephone numbers on your, on your phone which she did and they also asked her to viper id uh willis which she said yes she would do and they asked her to be the main prosecution witness um against ad we thought okay okay well, whatever but that you know we knew that and we knew that she wasn't involved so we weren't really overly concerned relieved obviously relieved that that had happened but you know you go into the next chapter anything oh my god what happens next sort of thing but um Anyway, so that was really where it was, and how we, this had happened. And then um, we weren't aware that the following day or so, um, Strong had gone up to the village where the incident had taken in place and gone and seen his friend Dowson, his mate, his very good friend.
1: Dowson is the guy where after the murder that Aidy and Ricky Willis go and wash the blood off their hands.
3: So Zoe, so Paul Strong comes back from that. He then, for some strange reason, wants to be in the police car with her to um, to go to Viper ID, and we believe he was coaching her in the car, but he also said later on in court that, so he had made a, like a slitting action across the throats as if to say you're next, um, which the police officer verified was just a load of rubbish, nothing like that had happened, but he made a point of saying that later on in the statement, and so Around about, was it the 20th of February?
1: Yeah, so basically during February, you know, we get a a photo sent from Zoe, which is on Valentine's Day, which is saying, look what Paul did for me. Um, And it's a meal that he prepared with candles, cards for Valentine's Day. And then things within that week things seem to go pretty much downhill quite quickly and he seems very upset very distressed a lot of the time he's become extremely controlling we visit Zoe and he's sort of left Zoe for quite quite a long amount of time and you know Zoe's practically getting us she wants us to stay with her quite a bit sort of in the property we get to the 17th of February and Zoe walks out from from Paul's because of things he's been saying to her he's been sort of upsetting her by you know just being quite derogatory and she goes to my mom's house so Zoe's grandmother's house and she says how she's never ever going to go back to Paul because he's he's just been absolutely awful and she doesn't want to sort of spend any more time with him then on the 18th which is the the Saturday um we get constant calls from Paul sort of saying to us, where is Zoe? I'm coming over to your house. Um, and I'm like, you know, Paul, she's not here. He didn't believe us, he turned up and he was showing that she wasn't here. The Sunday, the text continued to us. On the Monday, the texts continued to, to me, especially, um, and to Zoe. And Zoe's just spending time with other friends, staying away from him. And on the Monday, the 20th of February, Strong sends so many text messages to me, begging Zoe to go back to him, saying how much he loves her, saying how, how terrible it is, the things you know that she had to go through, um, and that he, he loves her and he won't let anybody hurt her. He needs her back. And he wanted her back that day because he was having a, um, a visit from a, a healthcare professional to do with a, a mental health appointment because he he appeared at that time, we believe, to be going through a mental episode of some description. He continues to text me, telling me he's gonna put his car through a brick wall um, and that he needs Zoe back, and that's all he wants to be complete with Zoe back there. My last text with Paul is about half past four that day. and And I'm quite civil to Paul, you know, it's not sort of a load of, you know, I'm not sort of saying to Paul, stay away, do this, do that. Then he continues to keep texting Zoe, and Zoe that night is actually with a friend. Um, it's a guy she knows, but with him and his girlfriend. At just before midnight, Strong texts Zoe to, again, be derogatory to sort of say, oh, you with lads and, you you know, sort of the usual, calling out all the names under the sun. And she doesn't reply because her phone's died. And because he doesn't get... This is how, you know, this is sort of how we we look at it because he just seems so angry that Zoe will not go back to him when he's demanded over the last few days. And then at 20 past midnight on the 21st of February, so 20 odd minutes after he'd sent Zoe that text, he rings up Durham police and he tells them that Zoe made a confession of murder to him and that that is on the 21st of February. He he obviously gives that information to the police, the police do not visit them at that particular point, they visit them at 11am the same day but several hours later so they have no no real idea of his mental state of mind or in fact if he's under the influence of alcohol um, or or indeed you know just if somebody was taken into custody and they were under the influence of alcohol they wouldn't be spoken to for many hours um nobody visited him to sort of establish what the situation was and then they take him at 11 o'clock to do i believe a video interview where he basically repeats zoe's account because zoe's account is very consistent you know it's consistent throughout and she gave many statements and you know it Apart from you know the odd word, the account is exactly the same, and he he gives that that account, which we know is exactly what Zoe will have said to him, and then certain points that he gets to, it's as if he puts arms and legs on it, and he he elaborates uh, with horrendous detail, um, on top of Zoe's original account.
3: Yeah, he gets one of the weapons wrong.
1: Yeah, he gets one of the weapons wrong, and which
3: is picked and- up judging court. So that happens, and then the inevitable happens. The police come back and come to speak to Zoe, and that date was the... It was the
1: 8th of March, um, 2017, and Zoe is questioned all day, and she is charged at about half past six at night on the 8th of March, goes to Magistrates' Court on March the 9th, and is taken to prison on the afternoon. But the
3: March 8th was the last time she was in the house.
2: Yeah.
3: And so... And so that that obviously was just a, an utter, you know, what the hell's going on kind of moment. And we had to, we wanted to take some clothes down for Zoe. So we went down to P- Lee police station and we ended up spending three hours there in the police station with the two arresting officers, if you like. Um, and they said the case was a mess. There was 20,000 plus texts or messages. Pieces of digital yeah, digital evidence. evidence. We were saying to them, we just don't believe this has happened, you know, how could this happen when you've already had the DNA evidence and the like? Why would she be brought in now? And they just didn't have an answer for us, but they never took any notes. So I, I, mean, I challenged that later on down the line, but they never took any notes. And so they're more interested about passwords than they were about what we had to say. Um, and they just completely dismissed us for three and a bit hours.
1: And they also they also did confirm to us at that time that all the digital evidence which was available was not reviewed before point of charge. Yeah. Um, or certainly even part of it. Um, the, we told them that we had many, many, and I'm talking hundreds of texts which are crucial to see. Um, and they, they didn't want to know. They they absolutely did not want to know. Anything which we were saying was was sort of brushed aside because we to them just obviously thought parents of of a, a female which had just been charged with murder and you know we were we, we were desperate to give them this information but they just didn't want we, it.
3: We've been honest and forthright throughout and I know that every other parent will be the same you know you, I, I mentioned it before if you know then you know and if we thought Zoe had done something then we would be quite upfront and say look you know fortunately Zoe if you've done something then you have to face the consequences of it but when you know that she hasn't done a murder you have to then start questioning people and saying, well, why have you charged her? There are lives ruined already. You're ruining another set of lives based on the fact that you just want to, I don't know, get a, get a, a target rate of conviction. like Because that's what you're doing. You, you, you're seeking a target rate of conviction because you want to um, make your stats look good and justify your funding. It's, it's a totally bizarre moment, you know, when, when she was charged. And then, then we move on towards the trial. Okay.
1: Yeah, sorry, I was just going to say at the, at the Magistrates Court on March the 9th, we were very quickly advised by Zoe's um, solicitor, who was present, um, obviously a point of charge, and the Magistrates Court, that they were going to um, bring in a QC, um, a barrister, um, who is who was a new silk and they couldn't speak highly enough of, of we've never been in this situation before and we were sort of you know at the time you think that you, you know that great they've, they've got somebody they've already got somebody in in mind um we we had to trust them we had to trust that that team at the time that they had found somebody they said she was all
3: singing or dancing they said she was the best and so we went, okay, fine. We were just, you know, you're like a sponge. You know, you don't know anything that's going on. So you just accept any help you can get, thinking that the people who are the professional bodies actually know what they're doing and what they're talking about. As it transpired, it wasn't as good as what they made it out to be.
1: Leading leading up to trial as well, we, um, between myself and Dave, we prepared a lot of information, which we were desperate to 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 give to the, the, the team. Um, A lot of
3: Facebook stuff where you can connect people, you know, text messages that the police didn't want to take from us in the three hour meeting when we said to them, what about all these text messages from Strong and the the like? You know, we we prepared as much as we could to help the legal team. But, you know, even even the run up to the trial, there was a a guy got in touch with us out of the blue. He's a mega friend of Strong's said that that said that he actually told him he was stitching her up to him and his mother. And that, you know, that was bang out of order and he, he didn't want um, any harm to come to her and he wanted to testify and all this kind of stuff. And the police really weren't interested.
1: We recorded those calls because we, um, we asked him if he was willing to go to a solicitor and he said yes, that didn't eventually transpire. But we know that he must have spoken to Paul Strong because when we mentioned earlier about the weapon that Paul Strong mentioned incorrectly this guy was the only other guy that he knew of the incorrect weapon and he he, he mentioned it as well and he wouldn't have he, he couldn't have known that if he hadn't spoken to paul strong but the <laughs> the main um one of the officers in the case um he dismissed it he said he was a crank so yeah he, he crank. just said he just said he was a, he was a crank so the Two investigating
3: officers the two people that uh arrested Zoe, um when we took the evidence to them um the, the male officer just said, oh, he's just, he's just a crank. And wasn't actually going to listen to the evidence we provided at first until we kind of pushed him to do that. And then he, he listened to it and nothing more came of it. Now, you think if someone was involved in a murder, you would think they'd be on you like, a, like anything, like as fast as you can to, you know, to get to as much information as you can to solve a crime. And they, um, they took their time to arrange an interview with him. It was totally bizarre. And um, then he
1: told them he was drunk.
3: He told him he was drunk, and that he'd apologise for what he said to us, and so nothing happened.
1: But we believe he was more concerned with the
3: yeah, it was more about his moral compass and the fact that he might get he'll he'll be in the fraternity being a grass sort of thing. So therefore, um, nothing came of it. We went to trial. Um,
2: so was joint enterprise or the variants used or mentioned in the charge? or court case? And did you know about the joint enterprise law before Zoe was charged?
3: No, short answer no. No one knows. It's um, it's like an ing in life. Uh, if you, if I don't drive a car, then I'm not going to know how to use the clutch and the gears. And it's a little bit like joint enterprise. No one knows what joint enterprise is until you happen to be the, the people in that sphere that have to then go and deal with joint enterprise. It wasn't mentioned uh, in, in the court it mentioned that they were in at the kill together to emphasise a dramatic aspect to um, a murder, which was completely inappropriate because they weren't in at the kill together. So he doesn't even know AD. You know, we, we didn't know anything about it. Uh, it really wasn't until after the trial, unfortunately, where you tend to pick up these things and you know, you find the good people at Jenga, for example, and you start trying to understand what on earth has gone on. Why can you be put in prison for something you didn't do?
2: So moving on to the trial, how was Zoe described during the trial and was any of her addictions taken into consideration? Was there any professional assessment of Zoe's mental state offered in court?
3: Uh, there was a mental assessment done and she was, I think there was something... Yeah, there,
1: there was a, during during the lead up to the trial, the legal team asked for a psych, uh, psychiatrist yeah. um, to do an assessment, carry out an assessment of Zoe. And that written assessment shows information that he believes that Zoe was shown um, possibly a mild form of person, of borderline personality disorder. But this information was not used in, in the trial. It wasn't. It, the, the legal team decided that it wasn't sufficient to, to contribute to the trial, to contribute towards Zoe's defence. So... It, but it is written, the, the report is within the files that we have, and it does state that she was, she was presenting with sort of mild, not these exact words, but these is where I'm putting it over to you, with mild borderline personality disorder. Um, but her addictions were, were not directly addressed. Um, it's well, obviously it was well known to the legal team that Zoe had been a victim of sexual exploitation and abuse from older males throughout her younger years. Um, and Zoe had turned to drink and was extremely dependent on drink she wasn't registered um, as an alcoholic but she was dependent every day on alcohol Um, and she had used sort of drugs in the past um, and her drug use did increase and we sadly we weren't aware of how bad the drug use had how much the drug use had increased but her addictions weren't directly addressed, they they were only brought up in a negative manner to sort of assist the prosecution. So the prosecution, you know, would would talk about the, the drug fueled evening and that all the all the people were taking drugs. Yeah. When actually Zoe wasn't, she had taken drugs um on the Thursday, she had, I believe, had had some form of drug. I don't know what, so I, I can't tell you exactly. On the Friday morning, but she was the only person who wasn't under the influence of drugs at the particular time. And the paramedics, when they were attending to Mark um, after the the drug overdose, they talk about Zoe as being the the one person who was there, who looked like a fish out of water. She was the one who didn't look like she belonged. She they they felt that she she shouldn't be there. She shouldn't be in that environment. So yeah, they the addictions were were addressed but only to be used in a negative manner certainly not to give any explanation as to why so we may have behaved in the way she did or was rather was unable to behave in the way that people might expect her to
2: and i think just following that do you because i feel like this links really um heavily with it do you believe that women's like own experiences of violence, control, and mental health are silenced, or in some cases, used against them. As you like mentioned, it was used in the bad light. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah, I, I I think what we do need to let you know of is that um about a year or so before this happened, um, so he was raped by a guy. So she was involved with um older males who were providing her a drink and drugs and, and abusing her, and a guy raped her. And it was in Durham County and Durham police took up the mantle of that investigation and they assured us they were doing everything they, they had to do to investigate the rape. And one of the, well, we there was delays, there, countless there were, delays.
1: There were huge delays. Dave, Dave was working away. And, and basically I was, I, I had, every day I was sitting thinking we should be hearing something by now. And I was very concerned at, at, at what was a lengthy delay. So I kept contacting the officer in charge, um, a, a DC um, at Durham Constabulary. And he kept saying to me, Yeah, we're moving on. We're, we're doing this, we're doing that. You know, everything sounded great. So I had to trust. And then it got to a point I thought, No, th- this is not right. So I, I rang him up and he said, You know, he sent me an email saying that the, the, the file was with the CPS. So I rang rang him directly and I said, can you give me the, the file number, the reference number? And he gave me it and I contacted the CPS in, in our area. At the time, we had two CPS officers. There's only one now, but two at the time. And I rang both of them and the both said, no, we, we haven't. They confirmed they did, weren't in receipt of that file. So I decided not to speak to that officer from that point And I rang his supervision. This telephone call with The guy's supervision led to us being involved with the Professional Standards Department of Durham Constabulary, and there was found that this DS, um, sorry, DC, had a case to answer in relation to the handling of Zoe's case. He had not sent it to the CPS. He had it in his bottom drawer. The file was unattended and in his bottom drawer. It was a deliberate act. And he had lied deliberately to us, and he basically was found guilty of gross misconduct, which we had to attend several meetings. His supervision, um, not the supervision I spoke to, the supervision who had been on the case with him, um, was also found to have a case to answer in, with regard to lack of management. And we had to decide whether this police officer was to, if we wanted him to lose his job and to dismiss from the police, we were told that would happen. And we listened to the reasons that he gave as to why he'd acted in such a way and lied deliberately to us and severely let Zoe down, more importantly. And he talked about a family and problems at home. And we decided that if Durham Police treated the gross misconduct seriously and they applied the proportion of punishment, shall we say, for what he'd done, then... We, we would obviously go along with the guy staying in his job as long as they dealt with it properly. And he was removed from the safeguarding team and he was dealt with by a Durham police. So we were told. And so we were told, yeah, exactly. The, his supervision, it's important to say, was dealing on dealing with another case just slightly prior to the rape case at Zoe's. And it was another sexual abuse case. And this DC's supervision received a commendation the following year for his work on the other case. So clearly he had a little bit more to be concerning himself with rather than managing his staff to um, process a rape case. There was no further action taken against the the rapist because he did rape Zoe because he admitted he raped Zoe, but he didn't he said he, he admitted he had sex with Zoe and he said it was consensual. So, so it, it's
3: another podcast if I'm honest David, because yeah. there's other things that went on so
1: there. basically it's the same police force.
3: So you can understand the degree of mistrust with the police because we are honest and tell them everything we need to tell them, as you should do when you speak to the police, as I was brought up to be. And, you know, you find out that they have failed your daughter massively. And then you are parachuted a a year later into a murder and a joint enterprise murder. And you're going, you know, you have to have a degree of suspicion uh, about the conduct of the police and how they dealt with the case um, because it just doesn't sit easy with you and think, well, You've already mocked up one, which is a, you know another case and his crime. And, you you, you know, you, all of a sudden our daughter, who you've told us, one of your officers has told us she didn't do it. You've also NFA'd her and you must have NFA'd her when the, the DNA evidence was in because you wouldn't have done it otherwise. And you're bringing her in on the, on the assumption of a guy who, who has said uh, she confessed murder to him, even though that guy has been told by his mate that his mate Willis is going to go down and all of a sudden is helping the police out in a way that gets Zoe brought in. It, you have to be very suspicious of the whole, the whole aspect. And so going back to your question about, well, the police never brought that up in the trial, obviously, because that would, you know, taint their trial. It was never brought up at all, really, about what happened with Zoe in a, in a previous life. One thing that the, the, the barrister did mention when she was summing up was um, the reaction Zoe's made, may have had the reason why she would have managed to get away so soon and, and why she maybe never got involved to help. Um, and it's it's a it's a it's a reaction you have certainly if you are um, I think it's to do with it's a victim if you're a victim of of sort sexual, of sexual
1: assault, trauma yeah. It's, yeah it's 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 a lady called Sue Lodrick who did the piece of work or did the did the um, and it's this this lady i uh, Lodrick I think she's actually worked alongside Durham Police um, and it's it's to. It's and to teach people why victims of sexual abuse or trauma may not react in exactly the way you would expect them to react in certain situations. So it's like a fight, flight, flop uh, um, mode, you know, that people go into, so uh, almost a fight for survival. So maybe a a learned behaviour that somebody has, because that's got them out of a situation before, they, they apply that same situation by... Some people might jump up and react, but other people might withdraw into themselves and might just sit there very quietly because that's how they knew they survived the last time. Um, you know, we obviously, we, the, the barrister in the, in the court um, talked about this behaviour. And then a support worker who we spoke to afterwards said, you know, this, there's a theory called the Zoe Lodrick theory, which discusses exactly why. Um, victims of sexual abuse that may behave in one way or another, but may not be the way somebody ultimately expects them to behave.
3: I think in this case, it was used against Zoe, and it was silenced, if that makes sense, because, um, you know, they they would try and make her out to be something she wasn't, and yet no one would acknowledge the fact that she'd been uh, a victim of sexual uh, violence, abuse in the past, there was no consideration towards that. I you know, I'm I'm not saying that would make you not be a murderer, but what I'm saying is that it wasn't brought up in the court at all, as far as I'm aware.
1: It was almost dismissed that um, sort of Paul Strong was also becoming increasingly controlling over the period of time. And it wasn't just dismissed by prosec- you know, it wasn't dismissed just by prosecution. We felt that and, and Zoe also feels this way that she tried to explain to the, to the barrister things that she needed to say, things that she wanted to say, and things that she needed to be heard by the jury about the way she'd been treated by Paul Strong. And she was more or less told that that wouldn't be helpful. Yeah, it was never, and, never an option. She and she an always option. she always mentions that to me, you know, it's always, and she, Zoe, you know, bless her, goes around, you know, speaking to other females in, in the prison where she is. And, you know, if they're about to go to trial, so he's always telling them, you know, if you've got something to say, say it, make sure it's said, because she didn't get the chance. And it's, you know, that, that's pretty sad when the barrister, especially a female barrister, is not willing to let, you know, in this case, Zoe's voice be heard.
3: There's a, there's a woman, um, I don't know if it's for this podcast, there's a woman who's on trail, trial at the moment in Newcastle, and Zoe speaks to her and says to her, get in touch with Jenva, get on the website, get in touch with them. You know, so your leaflets and your message do get out is just when you get it to the person at the right time and if they're prepared to 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 get a grip of it you know but it does work because she's telling people in there yeah <laughs> so just, just in case you ever wondered
2: that's always a really Thanks. lovely thing to hear for sure like the, that the words going around and you know that the fact that people prisoners know that they're being supported is always a really beautiful thing to hear and so As you mentioned, like with the police, ultimately everyone, the public thinks, you know, there's some people that you can trust. But deep down, you know, from recent news and just overall history, deep down, you know, that's not the fact. But moving on to the media, you know that the media can't be trusted. And so that kind of leads to the next question is, do you think Zoe had a fair trial due to the press coverage she received from the media?
3: You know, we we talked about that today. I don't know if the press coverage was that bad during the trial. It was after the trial and the verdict that it became an utter nightmare. Yeah, they they covered the, the, the trial and they said their bits in it and, you know, they highlighted things about Zoe being an evil temptress and, you know, party girl and stuff like that, which came out.
1: That was that was after that was post conviction. Yeah, yeah. it was it was the day after conviction, and a particular journalist who is still on our case at the moment, trying to get a hold of us. Um, She obviously clearly forgets what she wrote about quite you know a few years ago. Um, This this journalist spoke to a source, in her words, a reliable source, and I knew from the wording of the article that it could only be one of two people.
3: And it's a guy who used to abuse Zoe drinking drugs.
1: And, And the reason I knew that is because Zoe refers to her grandmother as Gran, and they referred in this article to Zoe's grandmother as Nana, and that is something that one of these two, you know, either or of these two people actually use that word. So... When when the piece was written, it was totally derogatory, it was unforgivable. And they referred to Zoe as a, a party girl and an evil temptress and talked about how long it took her to put on makeup on because without her makeup she looked vile and it just unnecessary comments which could have only come from a, a low life like one of the guys. Yeah, who... they
3: took pictures off Facebook from a profile and and put them in the paper.
1: Yeah, and it's and basically I mean sort of so there wasn't much from the press prior to the trial and and during the trial other than the live sort of updates that you get what we did find was that the press picked and chose when they the days they reported on so for instance on a day where maybe something would have been in support of zoe we didn't see a great deal of that but we didn't see a lot of the opposite either it was it was sort of fairly balanced during the trial but straight after you you didn't sort of see a great deal about adie in the paper it was all zoe zoe yeah. zoe it's, it a, was...
3: it's when it's a female the females get uh, just you know obliterated with the, the the dirge of negative press and that was apparent with zoe uh, you know everything was sort of ad was in the background and it was zoe at the forefront and it wasn't zoe who committed the murder But she was convicted of a joint enterprise murder.
1: Yeah, I I actually made a complaint through Trinity Group, um, the newspaper group, and a complaint to Ipso about comments which had been made. And I tried to advise them that they'd taken their reliable source was actually a a guy who had exploited and abused Zoe over the previous years. And they just said it was a reliable source. And because of the knowledge he knew, because of the things he knew, that's how they knew he was reliable. Anybody, you know, could have said parts of it, but only certain people could have said the, you yeah. know, the horrendous bits of yeah. it. But also the the family of the victim, and it's, it is important to say that we, you know, we can only imagine what the family went through. We didn't know the family personally, you know. Don't want to go into great detail about the family, but we, you, you know, our, our hearts went out to them for what they for what they went through. But Now we're at a stage where sort of after conviction, post-conviction, the victim's family got in touch with Take a Break magazine and did an article for the one-year anniversary um, of following Mark's death. It was at the Christmas time and it just condemned Zoe completely. It was just, it it just condemned her from start to finish. And then TV programmes which were made and the family were an active part of this with one
3: of the press guys who was at the court yeah
1: one of the one of the local sort of journalists Um, and that journalist he would walk into the court every morning he would wink at the family and then on his way out he would wink at them again and you just knew that night when you saw him there you just knew you know it wasn't going to be good in the paper but the family made this program with a company called Spungold and it was on five staff the channel five star and then went on to channel five and it just repeatedly gets shown as they do on channels like that and um, it was called killer girlfriends in the very early early part of the, the part of the program which is covering zoe's case um it shows text messages on the screen yeah. and those text messages were sent from ad to mark in october 2016 two months before the murder take play- took place. Zoe didn't know Adie at this time um, and was not communicating, no, sorry, was not living with, with Mark um, at that time. So when they show Zoe's picture on, Killer, on this programme called Killer Girlfriends, what they do, they put the text messages up that Adie sent next to Zoe's face. So, you know, to the honest to the layman, person, yes, yeah. they're going to think that Zoe sent those text messages and those text messages were actually threatening to kill Mark but they were sent in October 2016 and at the end of the program the family sit there you know they're obviously looking through the pictures the photos and we get all that but at the end of it it's the the closing comment is you know we don't believe people are born evil but zoe we believe zoe Warren was born evil and it it's sort of it's all about her it's it's all about zoe but it clearly there's a lot more you know a lot more to be said
2: and cuz you were talking about um kind of from leading from the press coverage I want to speak about after like obviously watching something as heart-wrenching as that and it probably hurt you guys a lot is kind of leading to the next question is how has this affected your family and those friends and everyone like that you know how is this um, affecting you and even now how is it still affecting you? Well
3: I mean you come back and you're in total shock and people in the street stop talking to you So you suddenly find out who your real friends are. But you have a range of emotions, um, bewilderment, anger, disbelief, and mistrust in the police and the legal system. Um, Absolutely, because of what they've done. You think, well, why have you done what you, you know, why have you said that? And why why is she in prison for something she hasn't done? Various financial pressures. um, I pretty much gave up my work and I decided to sort of involve myself heavily with the case and the defence files, um, because it's important for people out there to know that you can get your defence files. You know, if you it doesn't matter if it's legal aid or it's you, it's you paid for a barrister, that property, that 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 information that barrister works on, that legal team works on is your property and you're entitled to have it. So get it and get it electronically if you can. So, you know, I looked at the case, the defence files. And once I had a hold of them, I, you know, I started to sort of get involved with a lot of the universities and stuff. But but after I just want to go back to when the um, the conviction happened and we we sort of spun ourselves out of it and we, we were just bewildered we hadn't got the case files and we never got gotten for those seven eight months and i i wrote a letter to the chief constable of durham police you know why have you why is my daughter in prison why are these other people told us this and that why are the facebook's posts saying from the main prosecution witness Paul strong to say i can't wait to ruin lives why are there three other people not arrested or charged we went through that process of, I'm sure it's just a box ticking exercise for Durham Police through professional standards and um, nothing came of it. You know, when you ask them the heart-hitting questions about, what about the police officer who told me she didn't do it? Uh, they don't answer those questions because they won't do it. I sent that letter before we had the files and we pretty much were on the money with what was, what we had thought. And then we got the files afterwards and we knew more about it. And we got ourselves right into you know, what the defence had and looking at a lot of the unused uh, evidence and what wasn't disclosed and stuff. Um, We got in touch with CPS, so we got in touch with CCRC. We got involved with you guys at Chamber. I think it's important that we tell our story to people. I've been in touch with various academics across the country at uh, Universities of Kent, King's uh, in London, um, Cambridge Universities. Uh, We've written several letters to MPs. Who One followed up, got a follow-up from the question from it's not a justice secretary, but the, the number two, I can't remember the title, Liz Fraser in name, or something Fraser in English. So we got ourselves involved with it really quite heavily, you know, to a point where I put everything on, a, on a, this, this spreadsheet so we can actually look at where everything is. And we've got a timeline now. We know where everybody is and that kind of stuff in the village. And so we were pretty on the money where we know what was said and when. Because, and we've done that because of the fact that the police haven't done that. Quite simply, you know there are various statements that are, that they're in the defence files that the police didn't or, or the police wouldn't, the prosecution wouldn't push out. But that quite clearly, that Ad is telling people that he's murdered, he's murdered someone, and how he's done it, uh, more to the point, and that never gets to the jury. You know that we fight that fight continually, I suppose. Claire, okay. you know.
1: Yeah, I think I think for me, I mean, and uh, you know, I'm I'm not sort of afraid to say it that the anxiety is absolutely immense it's you know now I'm unable really to do anything socially alone Um, I've always got to have somebody sort of with me it's a constant worry a constant worry about where we're going to get with this you know where we know where we should be getting with this but are we going to get there when are we going to get there and it's a constant worry about Zoe um how she's feeling she puts on a brave face and she she tells me, you know, she's fine, but is she really fine? Um, especially, you know, with COVID, 23 and a half hours a day being locked up. She she appears very strong, but I imagine she has some very, very, you know, dark moments. You feel like you've constantly got to fight on your hands to get people to understand what we know. Um, and and sometimes you you sort of want to, you know, you you're trying to sort of almost justify yourself because you want to explain it the right way but you don't want to over explain because then you think do people actually are they listening properly or they believe what you're saying Do they think you're just saying this because you're Zoe's parents you know Zoe's got a sister and Zoe and her sister are now apart you know they're two and a half years between them and they could have really done with each other at this time at this stage in their lives it keeps them apart my parents are elderly and wonder if they'll ever see Zoe in their lifetime again out of prison. And you know, all the family, all, all the family feel exactly the same way. And you know, we have some good friends who understand. Um, but it, it's just trying to get people to understand because you people who read the papers don't gain an understanding of what's what's gone on. You know, we're we're guilty of that as well because years ago you would read the paper and you think, oh my goodness, that happened with that or you know things have gone on with different cases and you tend to believe what you read and it's I don't even sometimes recognize Zoe's case from what I read in the paper
3: no I mean you, you think you actually think you might be going mad at some stage because you think to yourself am I interpretate interpreting this correctly because it's very easy to think no everything's everything's right what we're saying is correct and you know we must be right therefore we can't be wrong and I've never been of that view. I've always wanted to be objectionable, objectionable as possibly as, as much as I possibly can, because I don't want to see everything as being all right when something isn't, isn't right, if that makes sense. And these universities I've been to, the people I've spoken to, one group of uh, academics came back and said Paul Strong was gaslighting Zoe. Everyone we've spoken to so far, and we ask them for an honest opinion, has not come back to us and said, uh, you're wrong, Dave and Claire. Um, not one yet. Uh, you know, and, and we're very fortunate that we were involved with Becky Clark and Catherine Bird and and the great work they did at the MMU with the stories of injustice. You know, they, you know, Zoe so is part of that document, you know, that 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 study. We managed to get on the launch, you know, our story out to those MPs and that audience um, when Becky and Catherine were, you know, given their brief on on the stories of injustice project that they done a, a huge amount of work on it was really you know it it, re- it was a really good point to, to say to people you know um it's just a shame that obviously you know Zoe's one of those 109 women who's who's there in that but at least people are seeing that and understanding that this is an injustice I,
1: yeah I also got to do the um a piece on Radio 4's Women's Hour sorry Um, and that had uh, obviously Becky Clark was on that and a barrister from Appeal Appeal in London and you know it basically used my recording from the House of Commons from the launch of the Stories of Injustice and we basically I had to use a recording because legally they wouldn't allow me to sort of make comment about Paul Strong, um, in a way that I had done to the House of Commons, um, obviously it was going out on the radio, um, all entirely true, I have to add, but it was it was something which had to be slightly cut short, but in essence it still, you know, it still had sort of the impact that I, w- I wanted it to, you know, it still contained enough information.
3: And we kind of get, we get involved now with anything that's to do with joint enterprise, uh, we do it for several reasons, one to broaden our knowledge, and where possible to to share Zoe's story, but also to support if we can other families out there, um, because I think we have that knowledge and we can at least we can sort of brain share it. Everyone can at least sort of help each other out, and hopefully, somewhere along the line, somebody might not get stuck in the same mire that we are at the moment.
2: I think that's a very noble thing that you're doing. I think education and knowledge are the most powerful tool that humans can possess. So I think like being able to kind of pass that on and help other parents and like other loved ones who are going through the same thing is an incredible thing to do so um i salute you on that is there anything else you would like to say to support why you and your loved ones should be released or never have been charged in the first place
3: um i think i'd have to say to you how many people do you know save someone's life with cpr and then being charged with their murder There was one other involved with initial assault. Two others helped remove evidence and tampered with the crime scene and burned the evidence, knife and bindings. Uh, There was another, there was a a DNA of another male in the property who in initial accounts can't say where he was for several weeks before and days after the night of the the incident.
2: He can say where
3: he was. He can say where he was, but he can't on the night of the murder say where he was. Yet his blood is in various parts of the house and on evidence at the burn site. You know, the police officers on Zoe's release from Durham Police Station, where she's hugging her and turned to me and said she didn't do it. That's kind of some of the things I want to say.
1: I think what what I would say, ultimately, is Zoe is innocent and, you know, she does not deserve to be there. She played no part. She didn't participate. She didn't encourage. Um, She was a
3: witness to a murder. Yeah. That she did not commit.
1: That, ultimately, has to be the reason why Zoe should not be. Where she is today, and also many more people shouldn't be where they are today. You know, basically, I just wanted to say before as well about Becky and Catherine with the stories of injustice. I mean, uh, Becky and Catherine, along with Jenber, they're they're the people who are obviously continuing to educate the the lawyers, the barristers, and the judges ultimately of 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 the future. And it's 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 crucial to sort of illustrate the mistakes, the unfairness, the wrongdoing, almost the laziness of the criminal justice system today. You have people, you know, on the TV, journalists, you know, people like Piers Morgan, who who repeatedly relates to cases in America. You know, one in particular he spoke about where he was talking about a woman who was not at the scene of the crime, but sentenced to the same as the principal offender. He never, ever addresses the issues close at the home. And I think people are afraid to stand up and and somebody does need to stand up and not be scared to trust a family or families who know that they are victims, that their loved ones are a victim of a miscarriage of justice because we're not fighting for the sake of it. We're fighting with everything we have because we know we are right. And as Dave said, if we knew our loved ones were guilty, probably speak for many when we say we would still be there for them, but in a different way, like supporting them through the process, but understanding that it would be a process that had to take place. And Zoe was failed by many years, by many people. She was failed by Northumbria police. She was failed by the children's services when obviously the exploitation was taking place, a community support team failed me, offered me help, but never, it never came. And Zoe was involved with a, a organization called WIDAP, so the Youth Drug and Alcohol Programme. These people were involved, but they were not helpful or constructive. They would praise Zoe and ring me to say how good it really was that Zoe had not touched alcohol for a couple of weeks, but Zoe had been you know, spoken to by police because she'd been drinking a couple of days earlier it's just that nobody seemed to have the interest to acknowledge what was really happening and that's failings failings upon failings which have led to this and the fees still continue to fail and the legal system continues to fail
2: i completely agree with that and yes so i think just relating back to what you're saying about the support system and the fact that like constantly women are failed is that would you agree with this statement is that the last thing we should be asking is that should we be locking up women who need support rather than punishment? We, cert-
1: well, of not. we, we shouldn't certainly not. Yeah. We shouldn't be locking anybody up that needs support and that you know, that includes men and children as well. If we look at where the feelings begin there's many of these people would not be in the environments or under the circumstances that they found themselves in, which have ultimately led them to be in prison. If the failings hadn't occurred from different organisations and authorities in the first place, then these people wouldn't be in that position. It, it's it's something, you know, it's a, a failing of many, but ultimately the only people who can put that right at the end would have been the, the court court. And they've still continued to fail.
3: I'll, I'll give you a good example of that. When Zoe was um, being arrested, and I think she'd been placed on bail, they, the police had gone round and spoken to a social worker. And in that statement, she said that Zoe wasn't, she didn't trust them.
1: Oh, yeah, she, she'd she said, basically, she said, Zoe, Zoe didn't, um, she found it difficult to trust people because she kept, when Zoe was being sexually exploited and abused, Zoe kept trying to tell the police, and the police would say things like, "We know what's happening in that house, but we we haven't got enough evidence and Zoe was always sort of disbelieved or she she felt that she wasn't being believed. We had a team of people you know over the years working with Zoe, and it was just one in one out. There was never anybody who spent much time with Zoe. And then there was one particular lady and she she did make a difference um, and Zoe learned to trust her. She It's important to say she was also the lady that visited Zoe with Mark um, in the hours before Mark's murder. She said to the police, if Zoe is talking to you, then she's telling you the truth. Because if she feels that she's able to talk to you and explain something, then she's telling the truth. And this is the
3: one person that Zoe would open up to completely. Yeah to trust
1: and she's a professional yeah she she works for children's services and she supports us hugely as well from you know not in a professional sort of capacity now but as somebody who's just there to support us if we if we need her and she has an interest in Zoe and she you know is still in contact with Zoe and she visits Zoe as well she was the one person that that said something really, you know, really important to the police and and they just totally bypassed that. Anything in support of Zoe, and we found that all the way through leading up to the trial, anything that could possibly have assisted Zoe, they just didn't want to know. No, It was closed down, it was, you know, we were just these neurotic parents who wanted to find anything, you know, they, you know, it's sort of, we, I, I've worked with the police for years, it's, you know, I have family, uh, fa- family members in the police, you know, and and it's something I've always been brought up to respect the police, to do things, you know, do things right in life, basically, and, you know, I've, we've never been in trouble with the police, this is totally, sort of, you know, our lives now are just totally different, totally different, they'll never be the same until so
2: And I can imagine, I think, from just, to, like, listening to you guys, and how passionate you are about um, you know, make, trying to make a change and, like, the fight that you have is amazing. And I think it just shows the lengths that, like, parents and, like, loved ones go to to show the innocence because... And I, I totally agree. I think pre this, I was literally... if I'd, I had no idea about joint enterprise, like many. Mm. And um, I would... Honestly, I would think when I saw, um, like, a newspaper article... I would instantly just look at the image and just the headline and be convinced that, yes, these people are guilty. But I think through the power of Jenga and just talking to um, incredible parents like you, I've been able to be so much more educated and just also for personal matters of like, you know, having also um, younger people that I've seen go through as well, I've been able to feel very educated. So I think what you've discussed and what you've kind of shown our readers is that, you know, the fight never stops and knowledge is power. Um, so I just want to basically kind of say, do you have anything else you'd like to add to this podcast?
1: I think it's just sort of one one thing which I meant to say earlier is in a joint enterprise here, or in, in a court case where there's one or more people if there's one person who is standing trial, then the evidence has to be absolutely overwhelming to reach a conviction. And a mountain to, of it as well. Yeah, and there has to be, exactly, there has to be a mountain of evidence, you know, sort of everything, you know, and it's beyond reasonable doubt. So anything, anything less than certain is not guilty. Um, in a joint enterprise, you know, or what we now know to be a joint enterprise trial, where one or more people are involved, it's as if you don't need to to even prove. It's just, it's a judge sitting thinking and, you know, obviously directing the jury um, to sort of say, well, you know, we've got maybe two people, three people, four people, one of them must have done it, you know, and then just like, because we can't work out who's actually done this, or even if they can work out who's done that, they just pull everybody else in along the way. And they don't have to, they don't have to have. The definitive evidence for each and every person. It's a collective, and and everybody is is punished collectively for in most cases for something that they haven't done.
2: I agree with that, and I think everything you mentioned, I completely agree, and it's very understandable. And I hope um everyone listening can have a sense of like get a good sense of what happened to his case and get a better understanding of it. Also, I want to. Thank you so much for joining us and it was absolutely great to talk to you both. I learned so much. Um, and I hope everyone listening did as well.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Eva. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.
2: Thank you,
0: guys. Not guilty by association, I'm not guilty. J E, not guilty by association, I'm not guilty. J E not guilty.